God is still good. God is on the throne. And we need to understand that his ways are not our ways. And he is good even though difficult times come. Shall we look at the verses and we will pray and finish up this wonderful book of Job. And it was so that after the Lord had spoken these words unto Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My wrath is kindled against thee, against thy two friends, for ye have not spoken of me the thing that is right, as my servant Job hath. We are in Job 42, verse 8. Therefore, take unto you now seven bullocks and seven rams, and go to my servant Job. Now those should be like beautiful words to us. My servant Job, and offer up for yourselves a burnt offering, and my servant Job shall pray for you, for him will I accept lest I deal with you after your folly, and that you have not spoken of me the thing which is right. Like my servant Job, four times, two verses, servant Job. So Eliphaz the Temanite, and Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Naamathite, went and did according as the Lord commanded them. The Lord also accepted Job. And Job, and the Lord turned, notice the Lord turned to captivity, or restored the captivity of Job, when he prayed for his friends. Also the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Then came there unto him all his brethren, all his sisters, and all that had been of his acquaintance before, and did eat with him, bread with him in his house, and they bemoaned him and comforted him over all the evil that the Lord hath brought upon him. Every man also gave him a piece of money, and everyone an earring of gold. So the Lord blessed the latter end of Job more than his beginning, for he had now... The word's not but he had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, and 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 she-asses. But that is a tremendous amount of stuff. And he had, animals, etc. And he had also seven sons and three daughters, and he called the name of the first one Jemima, which means handsome as, the, as of the day, or handsome as the day. And the name of the second, Kinzia, Kinzia. And the name of the third was, you pick however you want to pronounce it. Karen Hoopak, Hapakuk, whatever you however you want to pronounce it, you go right with it. And all the land were no women found so fair as the daughters of Job. And their father gave them inheritance, quite unusual, among their brethren. After this lived Job 140 years, and saw his sons and his sons' sons, even four generations. And Job died, being old and full of days, and lived happily ever after. Of course, that just added in there. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this wonderful book of Job. And this is the message we've been looking forward to in my mind's eye, this wonderful recounting of the restoration, reconciliation, and reward for Job. Help me this evening as I speak. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. The literature brims with the idea of dark Turning dark things turning out well. It's really, and may not know it so much, but it is a worldview rooted in biblical truth. It is the, the grace of God in operating in a fallen world, turning evil to good and bringing life out of death. What seems like a terrible thing, God uses for a miraculous thing. Joseph is thrown into a pit. He's taken captive. He's sent down to Egypt. He's put into Potiphar's house. He gets accused falsely. He's left in prison two extra years, I think it was. And yet he comes out and he has a chance to save the world nearly. And so turning good, bad into good. Tolkien calls this word 
catastrophe, a good catastrophe. And J.R.R. Tolkien was not uh, unfamiliar with that. During World War I, he caught trench fever. Now, you may not know what trench fever is, but it is a louse-born disease of a negative bacteria that they get in the trenches in World War I. Not a pleasant thing to have. And as you've read the Lord of the Rings, that epitomizes the catastrophe bringing good out of dark things or bad instances, etc. But that's literature. What about real life? I tell you, the supreme example of bringing good out of bad things was our Savior. Suffered, crucified, but yet, and buried, but yet risen again for us. What a wonderful change we find that Christ looked so, and they were weeping, and the disciples were so distraught. Christ is dead. He's in the grave. What happens now? Well, he's going to be raised from the dead. And so it's going to be what looks like absolutely disaster turns out into the greatest of things, the resurrection of Christ. And so that's in a lot of stories, as you well know. That's why fairy tales are called, and they lived happily ever after. Someone fights someone. He slays the dragon, wins the princess's heart, kisses her when she's dead asleep, and she wakes up, and they live happily ever after. That's fairy tale. But for the Christian, it's not really a fairy tale. We can live happily ever after. Job is doing that just now, I believe. Now, it's a mistake to suppose that Job is now happy because things have finally changed here in 42. They have not. He's still in the ashes. Look at 42 verse 6. His children are still dead. His people have not come back to him. There's not been reconciliation yet. But he says in 42 verse 6, he says, I repent in dust and ashes. Job has changed his wealth has not returned. His body is still racked with pain. The worms may be still crawling in and out of his sores on his body. His children are still dead, but he has peace. There's been reconciliation. The first three verses, nine, seven, nine, and eight, seven, eight, and nine. Sorry. Now remember, we've. If you think back to this uh, reconciliation, now Job is. If you think back, remember he said to the three friends. There's a lot of foreshadowing in Job. He says in 13.9, Is it good that he should search you out, or as one man mocketh another, do ye so mock him? The Lord has examined Job 38, 39, 40, 41. Job finds in 42 that he, has, he simply admits, he says, I, I'm, I'm really lost and undone in a way. He says that, I have heard of thee by the hearing of the ear, and by the, and now but my eye seeth thee, wherefore I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. He's come to the fact that he has done things wrong in the sight of God. Elihu has sort of said that, now, and God re, uh, agrees with that. So if you're writing down notes, first of all, only, number one's reconciliation, and then under that, reconciliation with God, verse 7. And it was so that after the Lord had spoken these words unto Job, the Lord said unto Eliphaz the Temanite, we find him all the way back in chapter 4, start first time, My wrath is kindled against thee and against thy two friends, for ye have not spoken of me the thing that is right as my servant Job hath. Now what can we, I just was thinking, what can we sort of assume since God's speaking to this man that he is on the ability to hear from God, uh, I would think that we would call them, I would call them probably a believer. We call him a believer in this day and age. He's someone who knows Jehovah. He speaks to him, and I'm not happy with you at all, he says, as my servant Job. We've not heard my servant Job since chapter, about chapter 2. And now we hear it four times in two verses. It's, it's, it's sort of like music to our ears. 
It's, 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 and there's a lot of things that might be music to your ears. I can tell you what's not music to my, our cat's ears when I start playing the piano because they all run for upstairs. They're downstairs, and I start first note or two, they go upstairs. Now, for some reason, the old hairy cat, Darius, used to come around while I was playing. I don't know why. He must not have good hearing or not, but he would come around and rub on my legs sometimes while I was playing the piano. Everybody else is out and running. There we are. Now, what does God mean when he says that Job has spoken right? Look at the end of that verse. We find that my wrath is kindled against thee, and against thy two friends. Remember, noticeably absent is Elihu. For ye have not spoken of me the thing that is right, as my servant Job hath. Now, now, where does that come from? Job has been spouting off some things here toward the end of the book that just weren't right. I'm right, and is God right? I know I'm innocent, but is God? And so he... Job has come to realize that, and he's confessed it. The words I think he's referring to is chapter 42, 1 to 6. Job admits he has been wrong. He answered the Lord and said, 42, 2, For I know that thou canst do everything, and, and that and no thought can be withholden from thee. Who is he that hideth counsel without knowledge? Therefore have I uttered that I understood not. Things too wonderful for me, which I knew not. I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. He says of the others that there is a uh, they were guilty of folly. Well, what is he saying? Well, well, we, well, Job was more eloquent than the other, or Job had a higher view of God than the others. No, really, it's pretty absolute. The contrast is Job said what was right; they said what was wrong. It's pretty clear. We don't have to look too far to find some uh, uh, outside reason. God says Job did right, and they did wrong. They were it was folly what they have said. In the context, I believe he goes back to those verses at the beginning of 42. When God turns to express his displeasure with his friend's foolish speech in contrast to Job's right speech to him, the natural conclusion is that he's referring to what Job has just said. Job has spoken right. They have not, and they, God's wrath is kindled against them. I would not want God's wrath kindled against me would you want God's wrath kindled against you? I think God's wrath is kindled against America. It's amazing he has not rubbed this out already in my thinking, but that's just me thinking. But God's a merciful God, isn't he? Full of mercy, far beyond what we deserve. So when God credits Job for speaking, I really believe that he's talking about these six verses here. Job voices to God right truths about him. His friend's theology, that's what they had denied. Remember, his friend said, well, Job's got to be punished because the only way God would do this is if someone had sinned. They were not, they were trying to put God into this box that this always works and God's always this exact same way and God has no creativity and God, that's what they were trying to do instead of letting God be God. God has interesting. This book, Mr. Mitchell had just prayed. College, third year, I think college. He had just prayed, but he wanted to be used by God. He had gotten right with God. He said, "Lord, whatever it takes, take my legs if you want to. Whatever, take my, take my, take everything, whatever you want." He had, "Lord, you can have my legs if you want." Three, I think it's like three or four days before he fell and broke his back and never can walk again. Just, I want to be. Whatever it takes. You know, we've ever, we sing that song, whatever it takes to draw closer to you. That's what I'm willing to do. For whatever it takes for my will to break, that's what I'll be willing to do. And that was his mindset. How many of us really, really, are you really ready to pray 
Lord, whatever it takes to draw me closer to you. I've not prayed it since I read that book. I'm wrestling with that. Because what, what, what does that really mean? You know, we never pray for patience. We never pray for patience. Lord, teach me. Don't pray. Lord, teach me. Don't pray. Lord, teach me patience. Now, Lord, give me patience. Yes. But Lord, don't teach me. I should say that. But Lord, don't teach me patience because it's untelling what may happen. But that should be our mindset, should it not? Whatever it takes to draw. Some of you are going through some rough times. <laughs> Maybe not even prayed that yet. But that's what, we, we, and that's what Job has faced. That's what Mr. Mitchell faces, even every day now. So the Lord's stipulation. Now look what happens to the, the friends. I, I love this verse. Therefore, Eliphaz the Temanite, take unto you now seven bullocks and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up for yourselves a burnt offering. And my servant Job shall pray for you. For him will I accept, lest I deal with you after your folly, in that which you have not spoken of me the thing which is right, like my servant Job. But just a minute, these three same people have been wagging their heads, we imagine. <clears throat> they've been hissing. They've been so disagreeing, probably throwing dust up in the air. Oh, and they've been so antagonistic toward the end. The friends have turned into uh, railing against Job in some regard. And now they have to go. Talk about poetic justice. They've got to go and, and, and talk to Job. And Job, who they say can't be right with God, they're certain, he, certain he's guilty of wickedness, and he's to pray for me? And I get, wow, talk about humbling. Now, like Job's friends, our only hope for reconciliation with God is rooted in reliance on God's appointed intercessor for us, Christ. He is the way, the truth, and the life. If we're going to come to God, we must come through Christ. There is no other way. And if they're going to get right with God, right with Job, Job's got to intercede. Wherefore, he is able to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. Reconciliation with God. It's a grand thing. Reconciliation also then with man. The Lord directed, them, the Lord, uh, directed Job to pray for his friends. Lest I deal with you in that which you have not spoken of me, the thing which is right, like my servant Job. And so Eliphaz and Timonite and Bildad and Shuhite and Zophar the Namathite went and did according as commanded, and the Lord also accepted Job. This was not, by the way, an imprecatory prayer. Now, you know what imprecatory prayer was like? Praying down God's judgment. It's the Psalms. Lord, please take care of the heathen. See that they get their... I'm just paraphrasing now. I'll give the ideas. See that they get their justice. Lord, they are, they are, are contrary to you. They're disobeying. Lord, bring your wrath on them. And that's not what he's asking them to do. Lord does not ask us to pray imprecatory prayers on other Christians, even though they may not, we may not like them and they may not like us. That's not the idea. So when I said there's no better therapy for a wounded or bitter spirit toward those who have wronged us than praying for them. I do not mean praying for God to chastise, rebuke, and make them miserable. That's not the idea. He means to pray. Remember when Christ said, pray for them that persecute you. That's not the idea either. 
those that despitefully use you. That's not praying, uh, uh, rebuking them. No, it means to pray for them as Job did, for God to forgive and accept and heal and bless them. You mean I'm supposed to pray for those who you don't like? Yes. You want your spirit to change? Start praying for someone. See, God knew Job needed to pray for his friends as much as they needed him to pray for them. What is this about? It's about an awesome God, and it's about a Job who learns about the awesome God. And the thing is, this Job in 42 is not the same one in Job 1 and 2. He's not. He's far better. He has grown in his understanding of God. By the way, you, and with Lord Terry's a year, but where you were in January of 23 and where you are now should be a big difference. You should be grown in the Lord. You sh- your walk with God should be sweeter and more intense, and you should know more about God, and you should be following Him at a greater depth and level. You should know about more about the Savior. Your time's running out. I don't know how old you are. I need to know how old you are. But I can tell you, you're one year older than you were last year. And the years you have remaining for mine, I mean, at, uh, you know, at 42, I don't have that many years left. Okay, okay. How about 62? Uh, I, don't have, I, don't have, I even have less years, especially if I'm lying, I might get struck dead right here in the pulpit. So there we are. At 62, my best years, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not like Moses. I don't have the longevity of 120 years. He started at 80, but that was Moses. That's not me. So my best physical years, they are, they've done flown the coop. So what do you do now, older person? You and I are to become more like the Savior. Elders in the Bible were always ones who were spiritually mature and old. Yes, they were old. And comes along with that old is not cranky. It's not spouting off everything. The first thing that comes to our minds as I get older, I hope I never start doing that. Your governor should stay on as a Christian. And we should be encouraging the young generation. That's why God is here. That's why you have silver hair or no hair or whatever hair you have left. As we get older, we are to encourage and train and uplift and encourage and teach and be an example. That's why we're here. Job has 140 more years, I think we just read. Schreiner says in his commentary, uh, the command from God led Job out of the imprisonment of self-preoccupation and out of the deadlock of critical language. It was no arbitrary com- demand. Now, what is arbitrary? Like, you can come take it or leave it. You know, it's arbitrary. Just hand- no, oh, it's, it was a command to do. And look what happens in 42.10. And the Lord turned the captivity of Job when he, when he prayed for his friends. The restoration came not after getting right with God in 42.6, according to the text of the language of the text, but after getting right with his friends. See, if Job forgave those who had wronged him, and if God accepted Job and forgave them as well, so must what? Who? We. Woo-hoo. Yes, my feet fiddle them in this case. They do. Who is us? If Job can forgive his friends, God forgives them, then so must we. God expects no less from us than he does from Job. Pray for those who wronged you, particularly in the context of your suffering, perhaps, is a mark of humility, maturity, and Christ-likeness. It's also very difficult. You can't do it on your own. You must ask God's help. So the first cycle of reconciliation is complete. God with Job, signaled by his communication with Job. Job with friends. God signaled by his intercession for them, Job's intercession for them, and then his friends with God. God accepted Job's intercession. So the the first round of restoration is complete. 
Reconciliation is number one. Number two is restoration, starting about verse 10. And the Lord turned the captivity of Job. Now, Job's family and friends had assumed that God had left Job, and so they did as well. I don't know where his wife has been all this time. Hopefully, she's still, she has to be still around, I'm thinking, because he has 10 more children, right? Yes. Now, they return to celebrate him and console him. And we are tempted to say, oh, my goodness, here comes the fair-weathered friends back. But look at the end of verse 11. They sort of get a little bit of a uh, reprieve. Every man also gave him a piece of money and everyone an earring of gold. They too understand now that the Lord brought all this on Job, not because of Job's sin, but because of God's sovereignty and freedom. And they bemoaned him and comforted him over all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. So now they understand. And why do you think that God gives Job double of everything so that he can just, let's listen here, I'm just letting you know, Job was not out of place, so just so everybody knows, you're going to get double of everything. Oh, Job hadn't sinned because now he has twice as much as he had before. Go, Job. So each one brought a token of prosperity. And the second circle of reconciliation is complete. Job with God, singled by his restoration, signaled by that. Job with family, singled by their mutual, decept- uh, they, by their mutual reception. And family with God, singled by their new understanding of who God is reconciliation, what we've been waiting for since chapter 3. There'd be reconciliation, verse 12, to the Lord, Yahweh, blessed the latter end of Job more than his beginning. For he had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, and 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 she-asses. I'm telling you, in any culture, that's a lot. In that culture, that's a monumental amount. If he was the greatest in the East, let's look what it says. Make sure I don't miss one. Yes, one, three. So that this man was the greatest of all of the men in the East. What is he now? He's not only Warren Buffett. He's Warren Buffett and Jeff Bezos combined. Wow, he, he, God has blessed him exceedingly abundantly with all that he could ask or think, but he's been through the fire. He's been through the fire. Interestingly enough, Mr. Mitchell had gotten out of step with God, and his sister and mom were praying that God would bring whatever it took to bring him to the Lord, to make him a man of God. Little did they know what he was going to have to face. 20, just alone, after all this happened, 20 months in the hospital, the pressure point wounds. He spent 20 months in the hospital just for pressure point wounds. Not all consecutively. God doubled Job's prosperity. God wanted no one to miss the fact that Job is not guilty. God chose by his freedom and sovereignty to bring us upon Job to bring about a better end. He knows the way that I take. And when he has tried me, I shall come forth as gold, Job had said. I'm telling you, he did it. By God's grace. He wasn't perfect, but he's come forth. Now, he doesn't, re- he doesn't bring his... Ch- I don't think, my personally, I don't think he's lost his... Ten children. I think they were in heaven or in Sheol, Hades. And I think now instead of giving him 20 more, you can't replace a child like that, but you can succeed them. He gives them 10 more children. So now he has double the children by having 10 more, no one on this earth. Blessings always multiplied by someone else to enjoy it with you. 
He had, again, not only the perfect number of sons, but he had three daughters of unparalleled beauty who received the very unusual privilege of inheritance. The book ends with such a wonderful epitaph. 15. And in all the land was no woman so fair as Job's daughters, or the daughters of Job, and their father gave them inheritance among their brethren. After this, Job lived 140 years and saw his sons and his sons' sons, even four generations. So Job died being old and full of days, a.k.a. happily ever after. So there's reconciliation, there's restoration, and then there is reward, the end of Job. Now, it is dangerous to misconstrue the happy ending of Job. It offers no guarantee that the suffering will be ended in this life, as it did for Job. Job was not even expecting. Do you remember earlier on, Job was expecting to die amidst all this. He was not expecting double what he had before. He was not expecting ten more children. His wife had told him to curse God and die in chapter 2 or 1, 1 or 2. And so he was not expecting that. And so it's, it's, it's a misstatement. It's a misconstruing of God's word to say, well, you know, God's got to reward me in this life like he did Job. He doesn't have, that's not the point. The point is this. There is an end. There is an end. It may not be in this life, but there is an end. There is. We, don't, we can't say God must reverse this suffering because that's what he did for Job. That's not the way it goes. It's not. He's, Mr. Mr. Mitchell recalls in his book, he was down in Atlanta on a TV station. He said, you know what? He was telling, basically he said, this, uh, this ability is God's will for me. And after the TV show, a lady accosted him on the street and said, what are you saying telling Christians that this disability is God's will for you? You need to pray and be healed. He even went through a healing service at one point in time, and of course the Lord chose to say no. We, we like God's blessings, Sometimes we struggle with God's trials He sends us. I, I'm, I'll be the first one in line for that. I struggle with that sometimes, often. But now Satan's whole case against man and God has been burned, crushed and burned. Job has clung to God and refused to abandon God, let alone curse Him. The suffering has served its purpose since the accusations that initiated Job's calamities have been demolished. The affliction need not continue. Job's, the mission and purpose of Job's suffering was done. So God ended the suffering. He's well again. The people come and he has doubled everything eventually. Wow. To go back to the beginning of the book, remember God acknowledged that Job's suffering was without cause. But remember, without cause on Job's end does not mean the same as without purpose. Don't you think that God does everything with a purpose that he allows into our lives? There's a purpose behind all those things. You should read the words of, of 196, Rejoice in the Lord. There's a purpose. Scott Mitchell now has had a chance to minister to several baseball teams, preach across America, counsel pastors, pastored for 17 years. He's had a lot of doors open that he never would have had if he had not been disabled as he is now. Worked with Joni Erickson Tata, etc. Because God had brought that to him. So, so not, it's not the same to say without cause, not the same without purpose. Nothing Job has done caused his suffering. That does not mean his suffering was pointless or capricious. Inexplicable is not the same as irrational. 
Inexplicable in God's eyes and God's doings is not the same as irrational. Job's sufferings were excruciating. Satan's motive was evil, but the sovereign's initiatives and intention behind Job's suffering and therefore its ultimate outcome was good in the highest possible sense of the word. It was God's best for Job. I trust that we can see what is God doing in our lives. We have become so encumbered with the cares of this life. We often don't have time to serve him as we should. I'm as guilty as any. Just my schedule probably as busy as anyone else's. And we, we just get so busy and, and we leave the best out. So I've started reading the Bible at night too. So I'm the keep up by two times at least during the year. That's okay. Is it, it start with the word and with the word? That's a pretty good thing to do, I think, for all of us. Let God speak to us. We find him plunged into the blackness of an inexplicable catastrophe until the whirlwind of the Almighty blew it all away. Job has his own stanza now of the catastrophic hymn. What good came out of Job's catastrophe in the language of Job's own confession? Paraphrase, God had purposed what he pleased and performed what he purposed. And what is the big deal? Job changed. Job is not the same man. And isn't that the goal, Christian, as you read God's word? You hear a message, you, read, you hear a, a podcast, you read God's word, you, you hear, you read, you go, something just clicks and you're not the same. Pastor Carroll preached the message 1992 or 3. Who's willing to say you'll spend 29 minutes in devotions every day? Of course, as a, a, a music director, I had to, I don't know, I raised my hand, and I did. Changed my life. Changed my life. Because I, I, I spent, I had not, you know, how, you know how sometimes if you're not really committed to something, you sort of slough off, well, I'm too busy today to read my Bible. I'm, I'm busy. That's, you're too busy. We're too busy. Too busy. Job was changed. Now, what he valued more than, than wealth and health or life itself, his relationship with God was exponentially deepened. His understanding of the Lord soared, and what he now knew about God was intensely personalized. His friend's aberrant theology, still with us today, was debunked. Satan's not merely defeated, but humiliated. Human faith is validated. Human worship is dignified. The angels are instructed and edified. God is magnified, made large in the eyes of creation. And the story is preserved for our enlightenment and encouragement and challenge. I'm telling you, God's will was done. It's about God. Working all these things through the life of one man who was willing to endure. Job. And willing to write about it. Now, would you want to write about your skeletons in the closet for posterity to read for 4,000 years? I'm thinking I don't want to do that. But God's, in Job, through the inspiration of Scripture, the Holy Spirit inspiring him, God gave us his account of Job. Well, theology professor Robert Louis Dabney, who lived in the 1860s, wrote a biography. Now, this is a man who lived and actually served under Stonewall Jackson, wrote a biography, which I have just started. It's called The Life and Campaigns of Lieutenant General Thomas J. Stonewall Jackson. He recounts, first of all, a chaplain coming to Stonewall Jackson's side as he entered now he's writing, Dabney writes, As he entered and saw the stump where the left arm had lately been, 
The chaplain exclaimed in distress, Oh, General, what a calamity! Jackson first thanked him with his usual courtesy. Now remember, he just lost an arm. And, and thanked him for his sympathy, and then proceeded with marked deliberation and emphasis as though delivering his Christian testimony, touching God's dealing with him. Now remember, this man wrote was a contemporary with Jackson. Quoting now Thomas Jackson, Stonewall Jackson. You see me severely wounded, but not depressed, not unhappy. I believe that it has been done according to God's holy will, and I acquiesce entirely in it. You may think it strange, but you never saw me more perfectly contented than I am today. For I am sure that my Heavenly Father designs this affliction for my good. I am perfectly satisfied that either in this life or in that which is to come, I shall discover that when it is now regarded as a great calamity, it's a blessing. And if it appears a great calamity, as it surely will be a great inconvenience to be deprived of my arm, it will result and a great blessing. I can wait until God in his own time shall make known to me the object that he has in this afflicting of me. But why should I not rather rejoice in it as a blessing and not look on it as a calamity at all? If it were in my power to replace my arm, I would not dare do it unless I could know it was the will of my heavenly Father. Dabney says, coming under fire, uh, in a brief northern offensive, the soldiers who first attempted to remove the wounded Jackson from the field dropped the litter carrying him. And by, we know he was shot by his own people. You know that, right? His own accidentally shot, right? You know that. They dropped the litter that was, they were carrying him in. Jackson later recounted that he assumed that at that moment that he would die upon the battlefield, quoting again from G General Jackson. It has been a precious experience to me that I was brought face to face with death. And found all is well. I then learned an important lesson that one has been uh, the subject of converting grace and is the child of God can, in the midst of severe sufferings, fix the thought upon God and heavenly things and derive great comfort and peace. But that one who has never made his peace with God would be unable to control his mind under such sufferings so as to understand properly the way of salvation and repent and believe on Christ. I felt that if I had neglected the salvation of my soul before, it would have been too late then. On Sunday morning, May 10th, 1863, Mrs. Jackson woke her weakened husband, and this is not Job's wife. Mrs. Jackson said to him, quoting, Do you know the doctors say you must very soon be in heaven? Do you not feel willing to acquiesce in God's allotment if he wills you to go today? And twice with difficulty he replied, I prefer it. I prefer it. She said, well, before this day closes, you will be with the blessed Savior in glory. Jackson said, I will be an infinite gainer to be translated. Not long after General Jackson seemed attempting to speak in the last words, he said his very last audible words audibly. He said, let us pass over the river and rest under the shade of the trees. And I just wonder what people see right before they go home to heaven. Let's pass over the river. And rest under the shade of the trees. Beyond all our suffering, there's a sovereign, just, and good God. He has purpose, and he accomplishes what his purpose is, and the end, and there is reward. And Job's voice now swells the chorus, finding, following, keeping, struggling. Is he sure to bless? Well, saints, apostles, prophets, and martyrs answer, yes, yes. And Scott Mitchell wrote a poem. 
he had he was going back to Tennessee Temple in the, in the spring of '82, and he was living in the dorm, and he wanted to be used by God. And I thought this poem was just fit with Job uh, tremendously well. Lord, I want to be gold. This is my prayer to Thee. I need the pressure. I need the fire to be what You want me to be. I want to be gold, Lord, whatever the cost may be. To lose a loved one or lose my health, I want what you want for me. Might is not to ask why, dear Lord, when trials come and go. I must believe without a doubt that those trials help me grow. So when testings come my way, O Lord, they're only for my good. The fires won't burn me nor the pressures crush me if I'm resting in your word. So make my life transparent, Lord. Refine me in thy mold and send the pressures and send the fires and make my life as gold. That's coming from a man who will never, ever, ever have his own children, ever walk again, never be without pain, constantly washing, walk, looking at his, he's paralyzed from the diaphragm down, all the things that come with that. And he, he still says, I want to come forth as gold. And I thought the very practical thing as a close, a man went into a barber shop to have his hair cut and his beard trimmed. As the barber began the work, they began to have a good conversation. They talked about so many things and various subjects. And when they eventually touched on the subject of God, the barber said, I don't believe that God exists. Why do you say that? Came the, asked the customer. Well, you just have to go out in the street and see that God does not exist. Tell me if God exists, why are there sick people? If God exists, why are there abandoned children? If God exists, there would be neither pain nor suffering. I can't imagine a loving God who would allow all these things. The customer thought for a moment but didn't respond because he didn't want to start an argument. The barber finished his job and the customer paid and left the shop. Just after he left the barber shop, he saw a man on the street with long, greasy, dirty hair and an untrimmed beard. The customer turned back and asked the gentleman to go into the shop, and so he went in the shop. The man with the long, stringy hair and greasy beard, etc., went to the barber. You know what? I don't believe barbers exist, the man said to the barber. And the barber said, how can you say, say such a thing? I'm here, and I'm a barber, and I just worked on you. No, the customer explained. Barbers don't exist because following your logic, if barbers existed, there would not be any man in the world that looks just like this man with the long hair and the greasy hair and the long beard. And the barber said, it is not that we don't exist. It's that he has never come in to see me. It's not that we don't exist. It's that that man's never come to see me. And that is the world today. They have never come to see the Savior. Just because they haven't doesn't mean he doesn't exist. It means they haven't availed themselves to him. So it's up to us, ladies and gentlemen, to be what God would have us to be. If nothing else, I hope your appreciation of our mighty God has been increased by this wonderful book of Job. And I know we're ready for a reprieve from probably all the trials. But without those trials, do we become better? See, that's what it takes for us to be used, I think, in many cases. The Lord has not ever used someone greatly. Was it Tozier who said that? Unless he has first hurt him deeply. See, that's... Do you really want to say that? Is it that important to you?
to be used by God. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for the book of Job. I thank you, Brother Scott, who is permanently in this life disabled beyond what any we can none of us have been afflicted with. A disability that he has to wrestle with every day. And yet he wants to be gold. Job said, I shall come forth as gold when he's tried me. Lord, I'm, I'm afraid that often I have come forth as mire and, and scrapnel and shavings and everything but gold. Lord, may our heart's desire be that as you allow things into our lives that are uncomfortable, painful, whatever they may be, that we will not chafe and fight and buck and resist, but we will submit. And then we too can keep our mind's eye on this verse. But when you've tried me, I shall come forth as gold. But we can only do it with you. So Lord, work in our hearts and lives, please. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.